0: He begins to feel that AI as an ideological project is actively harmful. Not just too ambitious, not just a bit unrealistic on what can be achieved, but that it actually has a sinister social and political dimension. and That's what he begins to dig into in the course of the 1970s.
1: Tech won't save us. I'm your host, Paris Marks. And this week, my guest is Ben Tarnoff. Ben writes about technology and politics. He is a founding editor of Logic Magazine and the author of Internet for the People, The Fight for Our Digital Future. Now, Ben recently wrote an article in The Guardian about Joseph Weizenbaum, who might be a name that you're familiar with, or maybe it's not. But he was kind of one of the pioneers of AI technology and built this chatbot called Eliza back in the 1960s that led him to develop a much more critical stance on technology and artificial intelligence and computers after he created that and saw the response to it and saw how people kind of related to computers and believed that computers could have the kind of intelligence that a human could have. Ever since this kind of, you know, big boom in AI hype has happened since the release of ChatGPT late last year, I've been wanting to have a discussion about Joseph Weizenbaum and his work to see how his critiques and see how his experiences can inform what is going on today and the kind of narratives and discussions that we're having about AI today because I do think that there's a lot that he learned and that he wrote about that is very informative to this moment and that has not totally been sidelined like there has been some writing about it but largely when we hear you know people like Sam Altman and these other influential folks in the AI industry talk about what their products can do and talk about their kind of vision for AI it's seems like a lot of these learnings that we should have from, you know, a much earlier stage of this technology and this thinking about what computers should be doing is really not present in a lot of those discussions and are not being kind of brought into this broader discourse and discussion about AI and the role that it should actually serve in our societies. And so that is why when Ben wrote this piece, I figured I had to have him on the show to talk about it because these ideas are just so important to everything that we're talking about in this moment and really push back on a lot of the ideas that people in the AI industry have for what ChatGPT and their image generators and all that kind of stuff should be doing. And I think that in this discussion, you'll find a lot of links back to other discussions that I've had with people like Tim Nick Gebru and Emily Bender and Dan McQuillan and molly crabapple about ai and the potential impacts that it might have in our world so i really hope you enjoy this conversation you know i really really did if you do like it make sure to leave a five-star review on apple Podcasts or spotify you can also share the show on social media or any friends or colleagues who you think would learn from it or kind of benefit from hearing this kind of conversation and of course if you want to ensure that i could keep doing this work that i can keep having these critical conversations with people like ben who provide just these fantastic perspectives that you know you're probably unlikely to hear in many other places make sure to join supporters like annie from richmond in california david from malaga and tim from baltimore by going to patreon.com slash tech not save us where you can become a supporter as well and help support the work that goes into making the show every single week so thanks so much and enjoy this week's conversation ben welcome back to tech won't save us thanks so much for having
0: me paris big fan of the show so it's always great to be here
1: Thanks so much. I'm a big fan of your work, of course, you know, from Logic Magazine to all the other writing and stuff that you've been doing, your books and everything else. You know, you're an essential contributor to the critical perspective that is so essential on the tech industry. So it's always great to have you back on the show, and I'm very excited to discuss what we'll be discussing today. I appreciate that. So you had a recent piece in The Guardian discussing kind of the life and work of Joseph Weizenbaum. Now, he is a figure who we've discussed on the show before. You know, he's kind of come up in some of these discussions around AI that we've been having in the past number of months, you know, as we're in this kind of moment of AI hype and his Eliza experiment or software in particular, or chatbot, we might say today. But, you know, we discussed them in the past with Zachary Loeb as well, if people want to go back and, and discuss that. But I think that there's a lot to get into, especially in this moment, you know, which ChatGPT is getting all this attention and stuff, because Weizenbaum's work, is very kind of linked to what is going on today, and I think provides a lot of lessons for it. So I just wanted to start by asking, you know, for people who aren't familiar, who was Joseph Weizenbaum, and why do you think his work continues to be relevant? Well, before I step
0: back to give you his full biography, and I can give you as much or as little as you would like, I have acquired probably more information about his backstory than anyone really needs to know. But the reason that he is in the conversation these days, and the reason that his name is appearing in places like the New Yorker and the New York Times over the past year or so is because of ChatGPT. And ChatGPT has obviously generated a lot of interest in chatbots, which are not new. In fact, Weizenbaum is commonly credited with creating the first chatbot in 1966 called Eliza. But that ChatGPT has, let's say, renewed interest in Chatbots as a conversational interface to something we might call AI, bracketing for a moment that AI is this contested and often ill defined term. So I'm always putting quotes around it. But nonetheless, ChatGPT gives us a character that we can interact with, which is underneath a large language model, which is, you know, in 2023 defined as AI. So Weizenbaum as a figure has attracted greater interest, both because he created the first chatbot, but also because partly through the experience of the reception to Eliza, which did make a big stir in 1966 when it was released, he began to develop this broader critique of AI, which again, sidebar, meant something a little bit different at a technical level then than it does now but nonetheless develops this critique of AI and really of computation more broadly that occurs over a series of articles, but really culminates in a 1976 book called Computer Power and Human Reason, which is his magnum opus. So that's why folks are talking about him. And and this article for The Guardian Long Read was my attempt to intervene in that conversation and say, hey, Eliza is really important and very interesting, and we should revisit that as folks are doing. But also, there's a lot more there. Eliza for him was actually a starting point to developing this broader critique that is of immense and urgent relevance for today.
1: Yeah, I'm really happy you outlined all of that, because that's basically what I want us to talk about in the conversation, right? Not just Eliza, but this broader critique that he developed as a result of creating this chatbot and then seeing how people were interacting with it and responding to it and just kind of developing these ideas around technology at this time. Do you want to give us just a brief idea of his early years and then how he actually got into doing work with computers and what we call AI now?
0: Sure. So let me just give you a brief chronology of his early life. So, Joseph Eisenbaum was born in 1923 in Berlin. He's a German Jew. His father came from Eastern Europe and established himself in Berlin, becomes a moderately successful furrier, someone who creates tailored fur clothing for women, and secures a somewhat secure foothold in the upper middle class of the German Jewish community in Berlin, marries, this is Weisenbaum's father, marries a much younger uh, Viennese woman and has a relatively successful shop in Berlin. Incidentally, or just kind of parenthetically, although it will have immense consequence for Weisenbaum's later life, his father is quite abusive to him, both physically and verbally. Tells him he's worthless from day one. And this is related to The mental health challenges that Weissenbaum develops from an early age, which will be of great consequence to him not only personally, but for his intellectual project because it helps stimulate his interest in psychology and in psychoanalysis. In 1936, Weissenbaum and his family leave Germany for the United States. The Nazis are now in power. They have passed a number of anti-Jewish laws. As a result, Weisenbaum is forced to uh, drop out of his public high school and move to a Jewish school where he meets a number of much poorer Jews, so-called Ostjuden, from the East and develops a very intense friendship with one of them. But All of this is cut short when the family decides to leave Germany for the United States. They end up in Detroit in 1936 because Weisenbaum's aunt had a bakery there, so that's where they had somewhere to stay. His father- Reestablishes his practice, you know, sets up a shop in Detroit again. Kind of rejoins the middle class, one could say. And Weisenbaum ends up studying at what is now Wayne State University, what was then Wayne University, which is a working class local public university in Detroit in the 1940s. Weisenbaum then serves in the army from 1942 to 1946, which he experiences as a kind of liberation from his family where he is very unhappy. And in the army, he gets to travel all over the country. He gets a degree of independence. And in the course of one of his furloughs back home in Detroit, he meets and marries a woman named Selma Good, who is a Jewish socialist who will go on to be one of the early members of the Democratic Socialists of America. She's very involved in the left-wing activism of the time, the 1940s being a kind of high watermark for the American left, period of very intense class struggle. They're in Detroit. This is the period in which the UAW is in the process of winning its first contract against Ford. So there's a lot going on. This is a period of very intense social mobilization and Weizenbaum gets caught up in that, develops a left-wing politics as a result. Now, in the late 1940s, he and Selma get divorced. And this is an extremely painful experience for him because by that point, they have a baby boy and they decide that Selma is going to take the boy to raise on her own. Out of this experience of heartbreak, he goes into psychoanalysis for the first time. And also, Goes into computing for the first time. So, this is of significance for his later career that his first encounter with psychoanalysis is happening around the same time as his first encounter with computing. His first encounter with computing, however, is accidental, serendipitous. He's studying math at Wayne University. His professor decides that he wants to build a computer. This is the late 1940s. The modern computer, the kind of architecture, what we now think of as the von Neumann architecture. This is all kind of starting to get consolidated in the late 1940s. It's obviously still very difficult to acquire a computer, right? You don't just go to the Radio Shack. I guess that reference itself dates me. But (laughs) you you don't go on Amazon.com or wherever one buys computers these days. I wouldn't know. And just buy it, particularly for a working-class university in the middle of Detroit. So they decide to build one. And this is an extremely exciting experience for bound that helps actually heal his heartbreak in a way. It brings him out of his pain, connects him to what will become a passion for him, which is computation, which gives him a sense of self, a self-esteem, a sense of self-worth that has been so missing in his family life with his father telling him he's worthless all the time. And He becomes quite good at computers. It really fits. He ends up marrying a woman named Ruth Maynes in the early 1950s and then becomes a early computer engineer and programmer. He works for General Electric in California in what will later become known as Silicon Valley where he develops a uh, project for the Bank of America that helps them use a computer system to automatically process checks. And by 1963, he is invited to become a professor at MIT. He experiences it as a great honor because it means he's kind of reached a stage of his career where he can be invited into this high temple of technology, where MIT is the epicenter of the emerging discipline of computer science in the United States at the time. Now, before I pause, because I've been talking for a long time, let me just tell you why did he join MIT? What was the context for him to join? The context for him was that in 1963, an initiative was launched at MIT called Project MAC, M-A-C. This was funded by Pentagon's R&D arm which at that point was known as ARPA, be later renamed DARPA, and they were getting millions of dollars at MIT from the Pentagon to work on interactive computing and in particular to perfect a technology that was known as time-sharing. Now, what does that mean? And I promise I'll be brief. To understand why these things were revolutionary We actually have to take a step back and talk briefly about what did computers look like when Joseph Eisenbaum was getting really into computers. Well, you had punch cards, and if you were writing a program, you had to encode that program onto the punch cards and then run these punch cards through the computer. This was known as batch processing. And typically what would happen is you would bring your program to the operator, they would run it overnight, and you'd come back in the morning to see if it ran correctly. Now, anyone who's ever done any kind of programming might imagine that this is a very painful way to develop a program, right? If you sit down in Python and you're you know, kind of at the interactive shell or whatever, you can just try out, hey, does this throw an error? Or if I just write up a little script and run it, does that run? Imagine having to wait a whole day and come back in the morning and say, oh, there are all these errors. It's a very slow, very difficult way of working with a computer. The idea with Project Mac was what if we could create a more conversational way of interacting with a computer, which would not just help us develop computer programs faster and more efficiently, but would also Create a new kind of human computer interaction. And in particular, this figure was very well known then and since, J.C.R. Licklider, who was at MIT and had moved to ARPA and was instrumental in getting Project Mac funded, for whom this idea of creating a more interactive experience of computing was absolutely essential. So that's the context in which Weizenbaum is hired into MIT. And that is crucially the context within which, and quite materially, because they provide the funding that Eliza, the first chatbot, is developed.
1: I appreciate you outlining all that history and even noting like the significance of those pieces to you know what he later does right and, and to the work that he ends up doing It leads us really well into talking about Eliza but before we do that, there are a couple things I just want to pick up on there you know in what you described because I think it is interesting in understanding kind of Weizenbaum's perspective and his approach toward this and just trying to ensure that we understand you know how he is approaching this work as he goes into Eliza you know one of the things that you described in your piece was how Weizenbaum had kind of a difficulty with humans and human interaction, I guess, that probably comes out of his experiences as a child, and how that made the computer and kind of working with computers something that was appealing. And I think that that is a familiar story that we hear from people in Silicon Valley or people who work with computers from time to time, you know. Mark Zuckerberg obviously comes to mind as someone who's very obvious there, but then the other piece is also that we're talking about how, you know, he had this critical stance on technology, but as I understand it from reading your piece, in this moment he considered himself to be a real advocate of these technologies and a real believer in what they could do. So can you talk to us a little bit about that before we go into talking about Eliza.
0: That's a good point, Paris. When you write about somebody, there's always this risk that you're projecting too much of yourself into them. And in fact, one of the key concepts that we need to understand in order to understand how and why people responded to Eliza and respond to chatbots since the way they did is this idea of transference, which we'll get into later. But I'm also very conscious of myself as a writer projecting perhaps too much of myself into my subject. The reason I mentioned that just as a frame is that I work in the tech industry, and I also have a complicated relationship to technology, one that I think is probably not unlike the one that Weizenbaum had, which is on the one hand, I love it. I'm fascinated by it. I want to be around it. I want to know how it works. It has given me a certain sense of myself, a certain stability, a career in the same way that it has. And, and did for for Weizenbaum. On the other hand, I am aware of the many destructive purposes to which it can be put, to which it's currently being put as he eventually was. So, for Weizenbaum, I think both he and I would resist this conversion narrative where he was a kind of naive believer in the promise of technology and then turned against it. I think it was something more complicated was going on, which is that he developed certain political commitments quite early, you know, really in in college in the 1940s. And while his political passions kind of recede over the course of the 50s and the early 60s and don't really get reactivated until he joins the movement against the Vietnam War on MIT's campus, that critical edge never entirely disappears. So even when you're reading articles in which he does exhibit a certain enthusiasm about Eliza as a chatbot demonstrating the potential for a more enriched kind of human computer interaction. I mean, this is his initial idea of what Eliza could be is not really a joke or a critique, but as an instance of a more conversational approach to computing in which we could talk in natural language to a computer And want to talk to a computer. And thus, through that process, the computer could learn more about us and about the world. So, there is, I think it's quite important to say, a kernel of optimism in the initial idea for Eliza that nonetheless has a bit of hesitation, a bit of ambivalence attached to it. Because when he releases Eliza out into the world in 1966, the institutional context in which it is being received is this. Field of artificial intelligence, which we can talk about in greater detail, in which figures like John McCarthy, who had been at MIT and was by then relocated to Stanford, or figures like Marvin Minsky, who was at MIT at the helm of the AI project there, had a much more audacious and one could say even arrogant views about the potential for computers to simulate human intelligence, the whole range of human intelligence. So There are kernels of optimism and kernels of critique as early as Eliza. And then what's interesting about watching him develop over the course of the late 60s and through the 1970s is how the kernels are still there, but the proportions become different. Where, you know, the kind of the critique gets turned up and maybe the optimism gets turned down. But then even towards the end of his life, we have these flashes of optimism about the possibilities for friendship with a you know, an artificially intelligent agent. I'll pause there. Perhaps I've nuanced broed it, into something incomprehensible.
1: <laughs> no, I found that fascinating, to be honest, to think about, you know, the way he was approaching it and how that approach kind of developed over time and how there was always these kind of conflicting or both of these viewpoints kind of coexisting together, but then seeing how they both evolve as his experiences with these technologies change and how he sees people interacting with the things that he's created, right? And, you know, you've already started to kind of bring us into the Eliza program or chatbot or whatever we want to call it. So how exactly did that work? And why was it significant at the time? And I guess, how did it shape how Weizenbaum started to kind of change his views on these technologies and the role that they might play?
0: So Eliza was a fairly simple chatbot in which you would sit initially at a electric typewriter, because this is actually before the era of like the computer console with a monitor, right? These are very early days of human-computer interaction. You sit at this typewriter, you type something in, and you get a response, right? And the character that Eliza is performing is that of a psychotherapist. So, the responses are ones that you might hear from a therapist, if you're familiar with that kind of language. Now, why did Weizenbaum choose to have Eliza perform this role? Well, we know that he has this history with psychoanalysis. He's interested in psychoanalytic concepts, psychoanalytic themes, dominate his work. So, there are those considerations. On the other hand, there's also a very practical consideration, which is in fact quite funny. For Eliza to perform the role of a psychotherapist, you don't have to encode any knowledge of the outside world into the program because all you have to do is write these fairly simple transformation rules that take the input and rejigger it and put it back to the user so an example might be you know i'm thinking a lot about my mother why are you thinking about your mother you know simply turning things back into questions and this is funny because if if you've had an experience of therapy Often that is the experience. People are reflecting back and taking you deeper. And as Weisenbaum says in in an aside in one of his articles, you know, in a normal interaction or let's say a non-therapeutic situation, if someone responded in that way, you would think there's something wrong with them. But in a therapeutic situation, it actually signals wisdom and depth and knowing, right? That type of transformation, which is essentially using your own language and reflecting it back to you. So Eliza produces a very powerful response in people. And this is a response that I think we could recognize as a transferential response. This is not a word that Weizenbaum himself uses, but I think it's one that is appropriate, where the response that a number of people have to this chatbot is to impute humanity, empathy, understanding to the program itself. And this is a phenomenon that. Sherry Turkle later calls the Eliza effect. So, What is most useful about Eliza is not really the chatbot, which is not terribly sophisticated by the standards of its time, but rather this discovery of the Eliza effect that we have this tendency, which is connected to our, our tendency to project feelings about people that we've known onto people who are present, which is transference, but that we can do that with computers actually as well. We can do that with software. Eliza generates a fair bit of interest at the time. The Boston Globe writes about it. They send a reporter to go sit and talk to Eliza and they run an excerpt of the transcript. It generates a fair bit of interest in his professional circles. Weizenbaum, partly as a result, secures tenure at MIT the following year. But one of the major responses, in addition to this transferential kind of Eliza effect, one in which people feel seen, feel heard, feel like there's a real person there, another set of responses, or let's say a related set of responses, are from the experts who think that this demonstrates a real understanding of natural language, that this is in fact a promising path for authentic, genuine, what we would call natural language processing now, and even among some psychotherapists who believe that this indicates a promising path for automated psychotherapy. and It's really these responses by the people who should know better, by the experts that bother Weizenbaum. But again, the timeline of this is interesting because while the response bothers him how he processes that takes some time. This is kind of a moment where we have to be a bit careful about time frame. where often when people are writing about Eliza, they're reading Weisebaum's reflections on Eliza towards the end of his life. and At that point, he's seeing things a bit differently than he did at the time, that he kind of telescopes this process of evolution, where Eliza, again, later in life, seems in retrospect to him to always have been a critique, to always have been a kind of parody of artificial intelligence. Whereas at the time, as we've discussed, it did have this element of optimism of this could provide a promising path for developing a more enriched form of human computer interaction. But then these set of responses that it generated, again, through this Eliza effect that he essentially discovers, bother him in a way that actually takes years to fully process. So, it sets in motion the threads of thought that will eventually culminate in his 1976 book. But that comes out 10 years after Eliza. And in between, there's a lot of evolution and development in his thinking.
1: It's really interesting to hear you describe all of that and also how the kind of reflections take some time to actually kind of come to a position where he has this kind of critical view on what this technology meant and you know how he kind of perceived it in retrospect but i think also what you describe there even though you're talking about something that happened in the 1960s there still seem to be so many parallels to what we've been seeing in the past number of months right with people interacting with these chatbots and feeling like it understands them and it's talking to them and whatnot. And experts saying that this means that we're really close to like artificial general intelligence or something like that. And even the reporters going out and speaking to it and publishing transcripts of it. Like it, it just seems so fascinating that after all of that time, the response can be so similar. And, you know, at least the immediate reaction can have so little of the kind of learnings or reflections from criticism that Weizenbaum and many others have made in the decades that have passed since then.
0: I think that's right. And I think maybe that helps us lead to a point that I would like to make, which is that the Eliza effect doesn't mean that people are stupid. Transference doesn't mean that you're an idiot. It's not this kind of moral category of like, you idiot. You think that's your mother? That's not your mother right? In fact, in psychoanalysis, transference is kind of what makes psychoanalysis work or is what's supposed to make it work. It's how we bring the past into the present to try to get some clarity on the distinction between the two. You actually have to make, again, in kind of the classical theory, you kind of actually have to make the analyst into this figure that holds all this transferential energy in order to uncover all of the things from the past and bring them into the present. The reason I mention this is because I think there's a similar perspective that Weizenbaum brings to the Eliza effect, where even in this original 1966 article, he's very clear that the software is producing an illusion of understanding. It's not real understanding. It's an illusion of understanding. It's a more powerful illusion than he had anticipated. People really seem to believe that this program understands them, that it's actually listening to them. But that illusion can be useful because it makes the user want to talk to Eliza. And through that process, Eliza might learn something about the world. That that illusion could actually contribute to a more interesting, more enriched form of human computer interaction. But he also points out in that original article, he says a certain danger lurks there, which is that through this illusion of understanding, we may attribute Certain level of judgment to computers that they really aren't capable of. So, again, it's not that people are dumb, people are stupid for thinking that this computer is a human. In fact, that sense might be constructive in certain contexts. But there are also certain dangers that we need to be mindful of. And it's the dangers, of course, that he becomes increasingly preoccupied with and which form the centerpiece of his broader critique in computer power and human reason.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and we'll return to that in you know a few minutes. I wanted to kind of pick up on the fact that obviously Weizenbaum is joining MIT at this time when the kind of concept of artificial intelligence is growing, you know, is kind of being promoted by people like uh, John McCarthy and Marvin Minsky, as you mentioned, who are also at MIT, if I have that right. And their kind of views on computer intelligence or the type of intelligence that computers can hold Seems quite distinct from Weizenbaum's view on computers and intelligence and whether a computer can ever kind of achieve human intelligence. Can you talk to us a bit about kind of the distinction between both of those different approaches or kind of perspectives on this term artificial intelligence or this notion of computer intelligence?
0: Absolutely. And this is a distinction that is present from the beginning, that even if Weizenbaum has not developed the full critique that he will publish in the 1970s, he's always quite distinct from the AI diehards, figures like McCarthy and Minsky, who really believe that a computer can precisely simulate human intelligence, that human intelligence and by extension human experience is essentially computable. And What that meant in this era, particularly for McCarthy, is that you could encode rules you know a very elaborate sets of rules. this is the paradigm of so-called symbolic AI, which is different than the the connectionist paradigm of neural networks that we're in today, but nonetheless that you could encode rules that would arrive at a certain simulation of human intelligence that could match or even exceed human capabilities. Weizenbaum is quite suspicious of this claim early. there's a radicalism to The AI project that he is always wary of. McCarthy is credited with coining the term artificial intelligence in the mid 50s. And there are various reasons that he comes up with that term and why he feels the need to come up with a new term. But one of them is that he wants to convey the breadth of his ambition. You know, this is the high Cold War, there's an enormous amount of money on the table. For science and technology, and there's a lot of optimism about what information technology, in particular, can achieve. Which you know is somewhat reasonable given the relatively rapid pace of development in that period. And McCarthy, as a result, has enormous optimism about the kind of intelligence that can be developed in a machine. And this is a kind of optimism that Weizenbaum really never shares. I think as time goes on for Weizenbaum, it becomes less about a certain kind of wariness or a certain suspicion or a certain kind of insistence on the need for more modest ambitions about what we can achieve in computation into something sharper, into something harder, into something where he begins to feel that AI as an ideological project is actively harmful, not just too ambitious, not just a bit unrealistic on what can be achieved, but that it actually has a sinister social and political dimension. And that's what he begins to dig into in the course of the 1970s.
1: Yeah. And I think that gives us a good kind of bridge to talk a bit more about those wider ideas as well, right? This kind of broader critique that he develops over time as he's kind of reflecting on these experiences and these issues. And one of the things that really stood out in reading your article was that Weizenbaum wrote that he believed the computer revolution was ultimately a counter-revolution, right? Something that was fundamentally conservative. And that goes against a lot of the narratives that we have around kind of personal computers and the internet as being this moment of empowerment where the individual is kind of all of these kind of additional abilities to enhance their capabilities or their skills or whatever, right? Why did he believe that? And what is the kind of importance of recognizing the computer revolution in that way?
0: In many ways, it's his most provocative idea. And it's one that I am both very drawn to, but also struggle with. And I think it's worth saying that Weizenbaum is a writer that one struggles with. He's a challenging writer to read, I think. Not in the sense that he uses a lot of technical language or a lot of jargon, but that his thinking, particularly in Computer Power and Human Reason, his 1976 book, has a kind of meandering quality, which we could charitably describe as essayistic. And it is quite brilliant at points. But at others, it feels a bit disjointed that he follows a thread, picks it up, drops it, picks up another thread. The reason I mention this is because there is a bit of interpretation that is required to make meaning of this very provocative point of the computer revolution being a counter-revolution. What does he actually completely mean by that? You have to fill in some of the blanks. I think what he meant by that is that on the one hand, the computer revolution as it takes place, let's say if we had to periodize it, it really emerges in the 50s and the 60s, the 60s being the turning point, the decade in which computation kind of enters mainstream American life in a profound way, no longer a specialized military technology. I think what he means by that is that this is a period in which economic, social, and racial hierarchies are being strengthened and consolidated. This is the period of the early Cold War. This is a period in which that high watermark of class struggle and struggle for racial justice that occurred during World War II in the United States has been defeated. That wave has receded. That we are certainly by the late 40s and the early 50s in a much more conservative period of American life, which we, I think, in pop culture associate with McCarthyism, but goes much deeper than that, of course. And that the computer is an instrument for strengthening those conservative, those counter-revolutionary forces because it makes it possible to automate decision-making at a certain scale and thus provide very narrow criteria for how decisions will be made that reinforce existing logics. I think that idea is actually quite familiar to us now when we think about how algorithmic policing, to take one example, reinforces existing Analog racist policing practices. But I think at the time, Weizenbaum was saying something that perhaps felt a bit newer. So that's one dimension of the counter revolutionary aspects of computing. And I should say, perhaps this contradicts what I said just a moment ago about how perhaps he was saying something a bit newer. This notion of computation as counter revolutionary is widely shared among members of social movements of the 1960s. You know, the computer. Becomes a symbol of not just the war in Vietnam, because computers are being used to wage war in Vietnam, which is why they're being attacked by student radicals at computer centers and campuses across the country, but also a symbol of kind of stifling bureaucracy of this very regimented, institutionalized form of life, which is connected to capitalism as a system, but also kind of the specific imprisoning cultural codes of 1950s America, which is, of course, part of what the student rebellions are about. So, in that sense, he shares that intuition that computers are counter-revolutionary, but tries to develop that idea a bit further. The other piece of his argument, I believe, is that not only do computers reinforce existing concentrations of power, existing social hierarchies, but that they also constrict our understanding of what it means to be a human being. And Actually, this latter point, I think, is more important for him, that computers encourage us to think of ourselves as computers, that they encourage us to mechanize our rational faculties, to embrace instrumental reason or instrumental rationality, which is a, a concept that he borrows from figures like Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno, for whom instrumental reason means an attention to means rather than ends, an attention to optimizing processes without reflecting on what those processes are for. And for Weizenbaum, the computer is an agent of instrumental reason. It encourages us to adopt this engineering mindset where we're just trying to make things more efficient, but we're not really thinking about what is this efficiency for. He gives an example from the anti-war movement, where during the campus protests at MIT, there was a proposal floated of why don't we create hotlines so that campus protesters can communicate with the administration, and this will ease tensions. He presents this as an example of instrumental reason of the kind that computers kind of automate and proliferate, because he says instrumental reason converts moral, political, social problems into technical ones. And in doing so, it suppresses the possibility of conflict, that you can't actually have conflict between different sets of interests, between different sets of values. It's simply a technical. Problem that can be solved with a technical solution. So, in this setting, the notion that the student protesters of the administration would have entirely opposed sets of interests, entirely opposed sets of values that actually can't be reconciled through a telephone wire is a difficult idea for instrumental reason to accommodate. But then you can see, I think, through that example, how instrumental reason and by extension, computation as a whole serves the status quo. Because if you're not allowed to ask questions about ends, if you're just thinking about means, then the established way of doing things continues. It sets very narrow parameters on what you're allowed to tinker with.
1: I think you've put that so well. And I think there's so many things I could say in response, but I think just a few things I'd want to pick up on that you know, on the one hand, when you talk about kind of people seeing themselves as computers, I think that this is something that we have experienced for a long time. But you notice in particular, when it comes to the people in Silicon Valley today, there's a strong kind of belief in or view that we should be trying to achieve kind of transhumanism, kind of to merge ourselves with computers. You know, you see people like Sam Altman kind of comparing us to stochastic parrots using a term used by Timnit Gebru and Emily Bender and those sorts of people to kind of draw uh, comparisons between these chatbots and large language models and, you know, ourselves as humans to try to make us kind of look as though we are one and the same. And you talked as well about this view of computers at the time as these things that are controlled by kind of large institutions. For, they're very bureaucratic. And it's interesting because I guess on the one hand, you describe how there can be this view that kind of Weizenbaum has, where he's looking at how these computers are used, kind of what the politics behind them are, and kind of taking a bit more of maybe an oppositional stance to this way that computers are operating. Whereas then you have kind of the Steve Jobs of the world kind of come in with the personal computer revolution and say that the problem isn't that kind of fundamental to computers, but just the fact that large institutions control the computers. And if we Put computers in everyone's hands, then we take away kind of the negative effects of that. I don't know if you have any further reflections on those points, or we can certainly discuss other aspects of his work.
0: I think something that makes me think of is this term humanism. <laughs> I hope that doesn't take us too far afield. But it's a term that has kind of an interesting history within the history of computers, because as computers begin to be capable of performing certain functions that we might associate with human intelligence, it always poses this question to us of what a human being is. And I think this is really the central preoccupation of Weizenbaum's work. What is a human being? And this is a question that becomes active and urgent and challenging in an era in which computers seem to be able to do more and more of the things that we would have associated with human beings. Humanism as a term, let's say, can mean a bunch of different things, but it signals some investment in an idea of the human, some attachment to the human as variously defined. And that set of ideas has been, on the one hand, very useful for developing information technology. We talked previously briefly about Project Mac and the influence of JCR Liquider. There is a lot of attention in those circles as they are developing the fundamentals of what we now take for granted as interactive computing. A lot of attention to this category of the human you mentioned Steve Jobs, You know that gets inflected with the kind of 60s counterculture and an interest in Eastern philosophy that is one of the inputs into the personal computing revolution. And then, of course, Jobs is central to the mobile computing revolution with the iPhone. So, I guess this is a long way of saying that talking about humans as something distinct from computers is not necessarily oppositional. Right? it can actually be a force that greatly develops the power of these technologies. It may also develop the usefulness of these technologies. I'm, I'm grateful that we have PCs and that I don't have to run punch cards through a mainframe. But nonetheless, it is something that the tech industry has made use of, that the humanization, if we would use that term, of information technology has made the industry... Much more powerful, much more profitable. So, on the one hand, I want to be wary of humanism, full stop, but I also want to be attentive to the different ways that humanism is defined and deployed. And what I find interesting about how Weizenbaum uses the term is that for him, he has a very historical understanding of what a human being is that a human being is a person who has a human history. Who is born to a human being, who is raised by a human being, who inhabits a human body, who has a human psyche, who goes about the world as a human. And that, to me, resists some of the kind of mysticism that I dislike in some humanist discourse and also refocuses us on the real distinctions. That he's interested in between the human and the computer. It's not that there's an essential goodness or an essential spiritual quality to humans that computers don't have. It's really just that it's quite simple in a way that they simply don't have a human history, and that I think opens the door to a point that I make at the very end of the piece, which is that it's and this is a point that Weizenbaum himself made, but I wanted to draw attention to because I thought it was a nice place to end. That opens the door to the possibility of a computer system developing its own history, developing its own embodiment, perhaps, developing its own set of relationships. And that through that process could acquire something like intelligence, but an intelligence that is very alien to ours, a very different kind of intelligence. And I think that's an important point to make is that Weizenbaum, unlike some other figures, never thought that intelligence could not develop in a machine. He did not want to make that type of claim. He just thought that if it did, it would look something completely different than human intelligence, that it would be as different to us as a dolphin's intelligence is to us.
1: I think that there's a whole conversation and a whole rabbit hole that we could go down in discussing that further. And I think I'm just going to allow that thought to exist as it is and people can reflect on it. Because there are a couple other things that I want us to discuss before we end off this conversation. And I think that when you talk about his idea of, you know, the importance of kind of the human history, it's a narrative that I feel like we are returning to in this moment where, you know, we have the threat of large language models and image generators and things like that. And one of the arguments that we hear by, say, writers in Hollywood is that ChatGPT doesn't have this kind of human experience that could go into writing these stories that people enjoy. Or artists, for example, saying that image generators, again, don't have these human experiences, so they can't make kind of unique in the way that we would expect and that we want kind of humans to do. And I think that bridges us into the discussion of what Weizenbaum writes about in his book, Computer Power and Human Reason, where he really draws a distinction between judgment and calculation and what a computer should do or be able to do and what should be left to humans and should not be given over to computers. So can you explain kind of the distinctions that he draws there and why he believes in the way that Silicon Valley presents today that we should be trying to have computers? kind of do as much as possible and virtually everything, how he really believed that that should not be the case and how there should be very clear things that computers should be designed to do and other things that should be left to humans because computers will never be able to effectively do those things.
0: I'm glad you asked that, Paris, because that's really the center of his book. And as he explains in the preface, the book has two major arguments. The first, which we've been discussing, is that there is a difference between man and machine. You know, that is very important to Weizenbaum. The second is that there are certain tasks that a computer should not do. And this gets to the distinction between what he calls judgment versus calculation. Now, calculation for Weizenbaum is a quantitative process. It uses a technical calculus to arrive at a particular decision. We could think of it as algorithmic, right? And there are many occasions in which we need to use calculation to arrive at a decision. Like this is absolutely an essential human faculty. But it's important to bound that we understand the distinction between that and judgment, which by contrast is a qualitative process. You can't use a technical calculus to arrive at a decision when you're using judgment, because judgment is rooted in values. And these values arise through the course of human experience. They're related to this question of human history that we spoke about just a moment ago, that we acquire values by being human beings in the world. We acquire them from our parents, from our surroundings, from our socialization. We define our own values as we grow older. Values are something that one can't acquire without having the experience of being human. That's a very important point for him because if you're going to make judgments, you need to rest on that foundation of values. This is why, for instance, he considers it obscene to imagine that a computer could perform the functions of a psychotherapist. Because for him, the functions of a psychotherapist require access to a set of human values, which are in turn predicated on a set of human experiences without which you can't actually provide a therapeutic encounter to someone. Similarly, he would consider obscene for a judge to be automated, right? To pass judgment on someone. A computer can never do that because a computer doesn't have access to those human values and human experiences. So, that distinction between judgment and calculation is really essential for his thinking.
1: Yeah, it definitely again brings to mind conversations that we're having today, right? Like it seems incredibly relevant in this moment where there is a renewed push for AI to be integrated in many different ways. And it brings to mind the work of someone like Dan McQuillan, who wrote the book Resisting AI, about, you know, where should we be okay with AI being implemented and should we be okay with it being used to kind of shape our lives and kind of ensure that we have less power over. How we live, essentially, because we are handing that over to AI and to computers and to machines. Should welfare systems that are offered by governments be determined by artificial intelligence systems that could end up getting something wrong or wouldn't be able to listen to a specific situation that you're in where there might need to be a compromise made or something like that or you know to do visa systems with AI tools or to turn policing into something that is done by AI that can have a lot of negative consequences because the AI does not have human values but also allows humans who do have values to say oh the AI said that this is okay, so that's fine now. So I think that you can see a lot of different ways that this is still incredibly relevant today and is still something that needs to be present as we consider what computers should actually be used for.
0: Exactly. And importantly, those are not complexity arguments because today it's very difficult to make the argument, well, those systems simply aren't complex enough to perform these functions. They're quite complex. You know, These are not just rule-following, programs. you know, They're relying on these massive neural networks. And the reality is we know how they're trained, but we don't actually really know why a large language model does what it does. It's a complexity that in many cases eludes human understanding, which is probably a problem of its own. But we're not saying that if only these systems were more complex, they would be able to perform the function of a psychotherapist. We're saying that they never could because they can't Access human values because they can't have human experiences. And it doesn't mean they might develop their own weird AI civilization, you know, God bless them, but that they should not be permitted to do things that only humans can do. And that when you allow them to do so, not only does it degrade the quality of that experience, but it shrinks the scope of decision-making. This is an important point, I think, about instrumental reason, which is that by reducing the richness of human reason into this algorithmic process, you are actually also constraining the decision space quite significantly. We can't actually make certain choices because we're enclosed in this much narrower form of decision-making. And this has tremendous political consequences. Again, this is, I think, part of Weizenbaum's point about the conservative impulse at the heart of computation.
1: Yeah. And I think that brings us back to something you were talking about earlier and that you wrote about in the piece where you describe how Weizenbaum was less concerned by AI as a technology and more by AI as an ideology, right? And I think that that really You know, kind of links up to what you were just saying. And so I I just wanted to close with more of a general question. You know, we've been talking about the history and of Weizenbaum's work and of its relevance to this moment. But we are in this period where there is a lot of AI hype because of large language models and ChatGPT and all this kind of stuff. But there's also this growing skepticism of Silicon Valley and kind of the worldview that it holds that we've been seeing growing over the past number of years. What do you think is kind of the takeaway that we should have from Weizenbaum's work in the present?
0: Wow, that's a big question. Well, I would encourage folks to read Weizenbaum. I mean, his great book is not in print, but perhaps it's on Libgen or something. I think returning to his work is quite useful. Again, not as a as a prophet, as someone who got it all right, but as someone to struggle with, as someone who challenges us, and who is not always right. There's times when he's often not right. Really, he doesn't get everything right. But this is someone who, to a large extent, was present at the creation, who centrally participated in the computer revolution, and who saw something inside of it that I think we are still working through. There's so much one could draw from his work. And as I mentioned before, it's not always very coherent. I'm not sure it adds up to a very kind of clean, integrated picture. But if I had to give people a takeaway that I thought was most valuable, I would say it really resides in this very simple sentence that there is a difference between a human being and a computer. It's a very Obvious point, but it's a point that AI as an ideology is constantly trying to deny. The ideology of AI is that everything that humans do, computers can and should do, and will eventually do better. And if you think of humans and computers as entirely distinct, entirely alien entities, that concept that is proposed by the ideology of AI becomes nonsensical, right? And you could even do a thought experiment of if a bunch of aliens landed from Mars, that would be very cool. It would be very interesting to have a conversation with them and see where they're coming from and figure out how do they think about language and culture and art and all these things. That's awesome. I've been wanting that to happen since I was like a little kid, right? I'm obsessed, frankly. And I believe that they're out there and that they will come. At some point, and that they'll be friendly, but we wouldn't say to the little green man or whatever they look like, "Hey, would you like to be my shrink? Would you like to be a judge? Would you like to be the president of the United States? Would you like to, you know, have your finger on the nuclear codes? Whatever it is, that would be insane. I don't think anyone would ever. Of course, one can never be too careful. I'm sure there's some strange internet subculture that celebrates that possibility, but I don't think that most people would find that very reasonable. But Weissenbaum's point is that that's kind of how we are approaching computers, right? that we are empowering them to an extraordinary degree to make decisions about people's lives when in fact, they're aliens. They don't have access to human experience, so they shouldn't be given such extraordinary power. But perhaps if we understand that really profound difference between human beings and computers, we can find a form of coexistence that can be quite useful, constructive, satisfying, even fascinating as they develop in their capabilities. So I think that's a note of cautious optimism that we can end on.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a fantastic point to lead the listeners with and and to leave them thinking about, especially in this moment of AI hype and with so many kind of CEOs expecting us to believe that the AIs will and should do so many different things. Ben, it's always fantastic to be able to pick your mind and to talk about these tech topics, because I think that, you know, you're an essential voice on the kind of key things that we're grappling with today when it comes to technology. So thank you so much for taking the time again to chat.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Paris. This was great.
1: Ben Tarnoff is a founding editor of Logic Magazine and the author of Internet for the People The Fight for Our Digital Future. You can get his book from Verso Books. You can follow me or the show by searching Paris Marx or Tech Won't Save Us on a whole range of social media platforms. And if you want to support the work that goes into making the show every week, you can go to tech will not save us and become a supporter. Thanks for listening.